All right, let's turn together to the 8th chapter of Matthew this evening. Matthew chapter number 8. Matthew chapter number 8. And we're going to be dealing this evening with uh, the faith of a centurion. The faith of a centurion. uh, But also the principle of Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled. And of course, his marvel was at the faith of a centurion. Uh, We are at Matthew chapter 8 in verse number 5. And we'll begin there uh, in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Of course, we see really the, one of the high points in this text is found there in verse 10. There's a lot of high points, if you will. But it talks about when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This particular account that we see here also appears in Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. And uh, there are many uh, who actually believe that this particular uh, healing of the centurion servant actually preceded the healing of the leper. Uh, That is for a matter of debate, I imagine. Uh, But we do know that the account in Luke chapter number 7 Uh, has the story given a little bit differently, but the main difference is between Matthew and the account in Luke is Matthew speaks, seems to speak as if the centurion first comes in person to Jesus, and Luke says that the centurion first sent elders of the Jews to speak to Jesus first. Uh, But we certainly can uh, look at this account and see uh, that the centurion, uh, whether he came first by himself or whether he sent elders first, uh, we certainly see that there is uh, nevertheless a great demonstration of faith uh, being demonstrated by this centurion. Uh, It is one of those remarkable passages where we actually see Jesus uh, marveling at something that he sees. Uh, something that he witnesses. Now, one of the things to remember is sometimes this story, this narrative is told that Jesus told the centurion, I marvel at your faith. He doesn't tell that directly to the centurion. He doesn't say that to him directly as far. He said he marveled and said to them that followed, 
Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. I believe this is part of uh, what we learn that uh, Jesus is not speaking directly to uh, the centurion at this point about his faith in order to give him some uh, ego boost about his faith, which we would all be tempted to do, I would imagine, if the Lord looked at us and said, I marvel at your faith. It is unlike anything that I've ever seen. I imagine all of us would be, have a pretty inflated spiritual pride at that point if Jesus is telling us about this faith. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a very uh, powerful portion of Scripture. Uh, we're going to look at this really from a couple different perspectives, but uh, we're going to give some background as far as who this centurion was, uh, what this centurion was about. Uh, but I want you to see, first of all, really in these first few verses, in verses 5 through 7, I want you to observe with me how the centurion states his servant's case. How the centurion states his servant's case before the Lord. One of the things that always strikes me when I read this is the concern and the compassion that the centurion had for his servant. Uh, we often think about servants and we think about masters and sometimes we think servants don't really matter to the master. The master doesn't really care about the servant. I can replace you. Uh, they're a dime a dozen, if you will. Uh, but we see that this centurion uh, states his servant's case before the Lord. Of course, we ought to be concerned about the souls for people. We ought to be concerned about the spiritual state of others. And, and we ought to uh, want to desire to see spiritual good uh, brought to them. Now, we do know that this centurion was a Roman soldier, yet we see these uh, characteristics of being a godly man. Uh, the, we often think that these centurions, these Roman soldiers, they were all wicked to the core. There was none that were, uh, there, was, there was none that were uh, godly. There was none that wanted anything to do with, uh, with the things of Christ. But yet this man demonstrates great faith uh, by the fact that he knows exactly who to ask for help. He knows exactly who has the authority uh, over illness. He knows exactly who has the ability uh, to command uh, this palsy in this case to be removed from the servant. Uh, this Gentile approaches our king, a soldier. Uh, now remember this, these centurions, these Romans were one of Israel's greatest oppressors. Uh, the Jews, when they would see a Roman soldier coming, this is not someone they would think was coming for a, a hospitality visit. Uh, this was someone that they would look and think, what are they coming to do now? The, Roman, the Romans are our oppressors. And I love the fact that within very little time, uh, Jesus responds to this centurion by saying, I will come and heal him. Now, you'll notice there's very little interaction that takes place here other than the fact that the centurion comes and it says he beseeches him, uh, saying, my Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Uh, this Roman officer of the uh, Roman army, of course, he's beseeching, he's begging. Uh, he's, he's laying aside his own post of authority and putting himself in a humble position before Christ. Uh, this this uh, centurion, this officer, uh, he has a great concern for his servant. Uh, we read in Scripture a lot of times when a, a person comes to Christ on behalf of their own children, but I think we should take great note of this. 
Uh, We're not told that this is actually his child. We're told that this is a servant. He's taking great concern for his servant. Now, we see him approach. The Lord receives him just like he received the leper by using uh, those words of I will. Uh, He didn't come for himself. The centurion came on behalf of the servant. I think there's something to be learned there. Uh, that the servant certainly had a concern for a sick servant. Uh, the centurion was, uh, had the servant at his own house. Uh, there's, there's, something, there's something about that as well. He could have simply turned him out. He could have simply said, a servant that is sick is of no value to me. I'm just going to simply turn my back and turn him away. How did he know he was so sick? Well, we could say maybe he was getting a report every day. Maybe they were telling him about his condition. I tend to think that because he knew he was grievously tormented, he knew that he was lying at home sick, I think that that centurion actually was looking in on this servant himself. He knew of the condition himself. He knew exactly uh, what the status of this servant was grievously tormented Uh, those are strong words that are being used there Uh, it's mentioned uh, i think in a way uh, not to just not to more convince jesus of the great need i think jesus already knew the need Uh, he knew of that Uh, but also remember that the jesus in his humanity you know this is jesus meeting the centurion in his humanity and yet the words grievously tormented certainly would have spoken uh, to Jesus's humanity, no doubt. Uh, now notice he, we're told that he is sick of the palsy. Uh, this palsy is, is caused a paralysis, uh, much like the leper. There's another example of where the physicians would most likely fail in trying to treat this. Uh, there was not a remedy. There was not something that they would say, okay, if, if a servant becomes sick with the palsy or a family member or whatever it is, uh, this is not something that you just go to the physician, the physician can heal. Uh, it was uh, a great evidence in the centurion's faith uh, that he even came to Christ in the first place because he's almost coming to him. This is an impossible situation. This is something we know the physicians can heal. So the centurion is demonstrating faith by just coming to Jesus at all. Again, I think it should be mentioned again and again and again. This is a centurion, uh, Israel's oppressors. He comes and he watched his servant and he describes these symptoms to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus about them. And so the Lord really, if you look at this in his pure context, Uh, The Lord did not need to be uh, beseeched, if you will, for very long. It simply says that the centurion said, I beseeched him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home. I love how quickly the Lord intercedes on behalf of this centurion's request. So we see, first of all, how and observing how the centurion states his servant's case. Number two, I want you to see in verses eight and nine, let's observe the centurion's self-abasement or his humility. Uh, Notice the words he uses. The centurion answered after the Lord said, I will come and heal him, which states that Jesus says, I'm coming to where he is. The centurion says, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. 
This is the true sign of a humble soul. Now, I think partly what's happening here is because of Jesus' response to him, that I will come and I will heal him. I think that was a humbling moment for the centurion. You know, when we realize how good and how gracious Christ has been to us, folks, it ought to humble us. It ought to bring us to a place to say, I can't believe that I was worthy enough that Jesus Christ would even come and deal with me so graciously. And of course, we know it's not because we're worthy enough ourselves. It's not because we've merited it. And that's what makes grace even more amazing. And yet, this centurion comes with such uh, compassion. And yet, he also demonstrates this humility. He didn't want to put the Lord to any trouble. Imagine this. Lord, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to inconvenience you. I, I don't want you to have to leave what you're doing here and, and come to my house. He, he felt unworthy to be served at such a high cost by someone like the Lord Jesus himself. But I want you to notice this. I think this is important. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak. Now, this centurion is demonstrating something that is really remarkable for what's happening. This centurion believes so much in the power and authority of Jesus. He says, I know you can speak from right where we are and you can speak and heal that servant without ever coming to my house. That's quite remarkable faith. Now, obviously, we've seen Jesus touch that leper last week, but Jesus is told by the centurion, I know you don't have to come under my roof. I don't want to inconvenience you. But notice he says, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. He says, Lord, all you have to do is speak and that servant will get up from that bed. He will no longer be paralyzed. He will walk. He argues, all you need to do, Lord, is just speak a word. He was under the authority himself. This, remember, this centurion had great power. He even remarks about saying how I have the power to tell a person to do. I have the power to tell a person to go. I have, I have the power to tell a person what to do. Here's this man of great power, great authority, humbling himself before the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I know your power is greater than all power and you have power over disease and all you have to do is speak the word and my servant's going to get up from that bed. I wonder if we believe that God has that type of power. I wonder if tonight we have that type of, type of faith that, that, yes, Jesus is not going to tell us face to face and, and verbally, I marvel at your faith that you believe me and you trust me and you know that all I have to do is speak the word. Folks, I wonder how many things we're go, we go through in day after day after day. Do we really believe that the Lord, all he has to do is speak? Folks, our issues and our problems, no matter how large they seem, you realize how powerful and how authoritative God is. There's absolutely nothing in your life that is beyond his power because there's nothing that's beyond his providence. There's nothing beyond his sovereignty. There's nothing happening in your life that Jesus is just not powerful enough to do. I think it's so important that the, that the centurion is presented to us as a man who has so much authority and so much power, yet he humbles himself. I'm not worthy of this. The centurion believed that the Lord Jesus had a commission from the supreme power that 
that would give him command over what's minor forces of the universe. Now to us, this is a remarkable demonstration of power. But can I say this very carefully? This is a minor thing for the Lord. This is a minor thing. You, you can, if, you, if we even tried to make a comparison, the salvation of your soul uh, is, is even grander than this. The fact that your soul could be saved from the damnation of hell is certainly something that is not minor. But you know in the Lord's economy, the healing of a servant with palsy, with paralysis, is a minor thing in the hands of God. Now, I don't mean to make light of anybody's issues, but do you realize that the things we face in this life are minor things in the hand and the power of God? No, it doesn't feel that way. I mean, we're all dealing with something tonight. Every one of you are dealing with something. So am I. We've all got something in our life that we're dealing with, but I want you to understand it's minor in the hands of God. This command of this centurion knew that a single word you know, the soldiers that were under, under the centurion's command, they were expected to respond with a single word. If the centurion said go, they were expected to go. If the centurion said do, they were expected to do. Isn't it ironic that Jesus is told by the centurion, I know all you have to do is speak a word and it'll be done. Really a remarkable interaction is taking place here. I think tonight I, I hope that we will learn about the authority of Jesus. I hope we will learn how that we ought to place ourselves under the authority of Jesus. We ought to, when we are dealing with things in our life, we ought to state that case like the centurion coming to the Lord with belief that I know that you can do this. But I also know that I'm not worthy of you even listening to a single one of my requests. I'm not even worthy of you at, at any point coming to where I am. Yet here is this great display of power. Notice again, he says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and doeth it. Now it's right after Jesus hears these words that we see the phrase, When Jesus heard it. So thirdly, I want you to observe with me our Lord's marvel at the centurion's great faith. You realize that the more self-abased, the more humble we are, the stronger and the more confident we will be in Christ. You realize humility does a number of different things, but humility places our confidence in the right person and in the right place. You know, when things go well in our life, we're pretty confident in ourselves. We're pretty confident that we can deal. We're pretty confident that we can take care of it. But yet, when things seem to unravel a bit, you realize it has a way of humbling us. But I believe we ought to be humble. We ought to be humble even when things are going well. The centurion reminds and owns up to the fact that he has power himself but he's telling the Lord but I know you have divine power 
You have a power that so supersedes the power that I have that even the command of the bands of soldiers that I have under my command, it is really nothing compared to the authority that you have. Here's this great man who owns his own unworthiness. Here's this great man that had an assurance of faith. Here's this centurion that knew that Christ could cure his servant. Here's this centurion that not only knew he could cure his servant, but could cure him at a distance with a word. Here's this centurion that knows this Lord has such divine power, such authority, he does not even have to put his hand or even touch this servant. He has that kind of power. Imagine believing that Christ could cure with just a word. Notice, the centurion doesn't say, Lord, you're going to need to send some medicine. Lord, you're going to need to do some kind of a, a, a trick or deception. Just simply speak the word. And the centurion is saying, I'm not even going to question that it actually takes place. This is what leads our Lord to say when Jesus heard this. He marveled. Now, marveled is an interesting word. It's a word that uh, it, it, can, it can have the idea of astonishment. It can have the idea of something that seems too good to be true. Uh, it can have the, the, the idea that it's, it's something that uh, is very rarely ever seen. But I also like what, this, what it says over in, uh, in Luke 7 about this. Uh, when Jesus heard these things, now it's different because it says this, He marveled at Him and turned Him about and said unto the people that followed Him. Now, see, here's where you get this little bit of, but wait a minute, He wasn't saying it directly to Him, but Luke speaks about that He turned the man around and says, I want you to see I have not found so great faith. So maybe we have these two different accounts how did this centurion deal with our Lord telling at least the crowd, hey, this is faith to marvel at. And he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. Now, that is an indictment of sorts. Because what he is saying, he is saying that I have not seen that type of faith that trusts me in that way. When the Son of Man... Uh, he speaks these words and he speaks the words of healing and the words of power. Uh, we must trust that according to the directions of his word and his providence, we can fully trust. When the Son of God comes, often he finds little faith. Remember, we've seen in passages of Scripture where he says, O faithless generation, O ye of little faith. Yet this centurion, he says, I have never seen faith like this before. I have never witnessed faith like this. No doubt there were people probably in that crowd that followed him. Remember, not all people were following them because of their faith. They were following him because of his miracles. Remember when he came down off the sermon, came down from the mount, from preaching the sermon on the mount, there was a great number of people that followed him, but many were not following him for the right reasons. And then with the healing of the leper, remember the leper went and told everybody about it, and suddenly everybody's coming out of the woodwork and they want the they want the miracles. And Jesus, I think, gets right to the point and he says, listen, it's not about me doing the miracles. 
It's about the faith. He marveled at the centurion's faith. Notice he didn't marvel at the fact that he knew the servant was healed. He marveled at the centurion's faith. Marvels at a soldier, an officer, having so much faith. Now again, we seem to have a little bit of a a difference of how Matthew writes and how Luke writes it. So we take those two scriptures together and it is quite possible, based upon the account in Luke, that the centurion heard this. We don't see anywhere where the servant or the centurion now says that, hey, look at the faith that I have. I'm now the prime example. If you'll just follow me, we don't see another word from this centurion, but we certainly do see that the Lord marvels at his faith. And he says to them that followed, verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that he's never, there's no faith anywhere in Israel, but he says there is very little. I'm not finding much of that faith. It's amazing that we see Jesus marvel. I think there's a marvel to this because when Jesus actually sees the type of faith in the centurion, he truly very rarely sees this type of faith. You know, I often challenge myself, and I think the Spirit more importantly challenges me every time I see this passage. I'm like, would I, and I'm not trying to be emotional here, but would I have a faith that Jesus would marvel at? Do I, do I actually trust the Lord that much? Do I trust the Lord that I could approach, this, approach as the centurion did in humility and unworthiness and in humble, and humbleness and self-abasement and say, Lord, look, you're, I'm not even worthy for you to come anywhere near me, but I trust and know that you have the power to do and deal with whatever it is. Really, it's really an amazing, amazing account that's taking place here. Now, understand this, when Jesus marvels, He's not marveling as if it is something that's brand new. It's something that he's never seen or something that is surprising him, so to speak. But he is saying it's something rare, something uncommon. I think it's a teaching moment. It's a moment that advises us to look and say, this is the type of faith that Jesus marvels at. It speaks of the honor When he says, I have not seen faith like this in Israel. Jesus is speaking uh, to the, the honor of the centurion. Now remember, the centurion is a Roman. He's not a son of Abraham. He's not, he's not a Jew. He's not an heir of Abraham. He's, he's not a, 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 out of the line of Abraham itself. But yet we see that he is in fact, he has an heir of Abraham's faith. Abraham... His life was a life of faith. From the very moment God called Abraham to leave his home and to go to a place he didn't know, the place that God said, I'll show you when you get there. If Sarah asks you where you're going, just tell her, I don't know. You don't know where you're going. But I will make a great nation out of you. I will promise you. I will make these covenants with you. And he does all those things. And he says, yet I've not seen this type of faith very often in Israel. Remember, this speaks to the shame of Israel. And this is important because what Jesus is now getting ready to announce after this marveling at this faith is really an indictment against the people who should have this type of faith, which was Israel. 
It speaks to the shame of Israel. It speaks to the shame of Israel because they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the first oracles of God. And yet, look what he says. And I say unto you, there's no doubt in my mind, he was talking to many, many Jews who would have been standing there. I want you to see in verses 11 and 12, I want you to observe that an outward profession may cause us to be called the children of the kingdom, but if we rest in just being called that and with nothing else to show, we will be cast out. In other words, an outward profession, if that's all we have, and we have nothing else to show for it, ultimately we would face the same fate in what Jesus is saying here. Remember, the Jews were very, very, had a tendency to rely on their heritage. Many Jews truly believed that because they were the line of Abraham, that's all they needed. All they needed to be was related to Abraham. And because we're in the line of Abraham, Abraham is our father, we're going to get to glory with God because of that. Jesus now just throws all of that into complete oblivion. Because he says to them now, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you think this is not an inflammatory statement by the Lord, you don't know your Bible history. Jesus is saying there are going to be people who are coming outside of the family of Israel who are going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you've got to remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees especially, that would have made them spitting mad. Because they would say, no way are you going to allow those unclean, filthy, Gentile, non-Jewish people to sit down in the kingdom with us. Jesus does not say this lightly. In one of the other versions, it might have been the ESV. I'm not sure. I looked at a couple different ones today. It doesn't use the phrase sit down. It uses the term recline with. To recline, that, that has even more, it, it's a little bit more, uh, it gives us a little bit bigger of a picture. To recline with, and you realize when Jesus would sit with his disciples, uh, you often find them, and you see the account with the disciple whom Jesus loved, John was leaning upon his chest. That was a sign of fellowship. That was a sign of, he, you are accepted into the kingdom. What Jesus is telling these Jews is he's telling them, listen, your relation to Abraham, you're in for a great surprise. People from all different nations, from the east and the west, are going to sit down in the kingdom of heaven. And notice he says, many shall come. Folks, we've heard this said until it's almost cliched, and I, don't, I almost hate to add to the cliche because it is true. But there is this idea that we all have this idea of who's going to be in the kingdom of heaven and who's not. Like we seem to have in our mind's eye, well, I know that person, I'm going to see them in heaven. I know I'm going to see that person in heaven. I know those people for sure aren't going to heaven. I think we're all going to be a bit shocked if we're going to have the ability to be shocked in heaven about who's there and who isn't. There will be people, a great many there, that we did not expect. That's Jesus' point. I don't want you to think about a cliche. I want you to think about this. Many shall come. He's telling the Jews this. You're going to be shocked 
how many who are not of the kingdom of Israel, direct lineage of Abraham, who are not going to be there. Folks, I'm telling you, this was inflammatory to the Jew because they believed that's all they needed. They didn't need to have faith. They just needed to be of the line of Abraham. As long as Abraham's our father, we're good. As long as the works of Moses are our works, as long as we're in the line of Isaac and Jacob, we're good. And Jesus says, many are going to come from east and west. And here's, what he, here's where he really lays into it. But the children of the kingdom. Now, the children of the kingdom is a direct, direct reference to the Jews. So look at this compare and contrast. He does. This is right on the coattails of Jesus marvels at a centurion's faith. By the way, a Gentile. By the way, a person who was not a child of the kingdom, but he has the faith of Abraham, who I believe he is one of the many that would come from the east and the west. This is a living object lesson. If, in fact, the account like Luke said, where Jesus took him and turned him around to the crowd and said, I've not seen this kind of faith very often. And by the way, all of you who are relying on your heritage to Abraham, look what he says. Children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know this idea that Jesus always came to this earth when he was here speaking love and unity and harmony. That's not a harmonious statement that he just made. He is telling all of you self-righteous Jews who believe that all you need is a heritage of being Jewish and being from Abraham are going to be cast out into outer darkness because you don't have the faith. When Jesus marveled at this faith, this was not just we have this living example of how to, have a, how to live a life of faith. Jesus is using this as a very scary and sobering point to Israel to say, without faith... Whether you're a child of the kingdom or not, you're not going to be there, and many others are going to be there who you didn't expect. The Jews, uh, the children of the kingdom here who Jesus is referring to, of course, are the Jews that persisted in unbelief. As we've mentioned, by birth, they were children of the kingdom. But Jesus is saying you will be cut off from the kingdom of God in the day of judgment. Folks, I think we need to fully get this and understand that it will be of no value. It will be of no value when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It will be of no value whether you were Jew or Gentile. It will not matter one bit. He's not going to separate us out by Jew and Gentile. He's not going to separate us out by believing Jew, believing Gentile. There's not going to be two paths. One's going to go that way. One's going to go to the left. One's going to go to the right. It is going to be those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone. There is not a line for, okay, all of you who got here just because you're of the lineage of Abraham, you go here. No, he says where they will be, they will be cast out into outer darkness. This goes, this goes back even in a, in a, in a wide application that our children and even us, it is not enough for us just to be in the family of believers just because our mom and dad is a believer, just because our grandparents are a believer. No, we have to come to personal repentance and trust in Christ alone. It's, it's, it's one thing for us to sit and look at the children of the kingdom and also realize that man will be judged 
not by what they were called, but rather by what they were. Jesus is not going to say, were you a Jew or a Gentile? That's going to be the first screening. No. What he's saying is it is what you were. Outer darkness. Often people wonder, and some versions are different. I don't know if they all use the word outer. Uh, but the word outer in the King James Version, uh, it, it speaks of an extreme darkness. Sometimes people wonder what does outer darkness mean? It means extreme darkness. Some people have put it this way. Matthew Henry put it this way. It's the highest degree of darkness. Now, I'm not sure we can comprehend that because this is not just darkness in the physical sense, but it's also darkness in the spiritual sense. I think we, 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 could, we could get caught up in the physical idea, and I think there is a, there's a real presence to this, but the extreme darkness, our darkness, also means that there is no possibility or any hope of any light shining. In other words, those who will be cast out into outer darkness do not ever have a chance of spiritual light coming unto them again, nor should they ever expect physical light to be witnessed by them again. And you realize everything that Jesus is talking about here, he's not talking in hypotheticals, he's talking in realities. It is this darkness that is the result of no faith. Of course, weeping, we know that that is, that is crying. It is a reference to weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, in hell, there's going to be this great everlasting grief. There's going to be these floods of sorrows and tears. But they will have no purpose because there will be no ending to them. You know, oftentimes when someone goes through grief, they say, the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to shed many tears. You realize the shedding of tears, actually the grief process has a purpose. It's actually good for you to shed tears. I think it's good for us to shed tears, not only that are grief tears, but also tears of joy, tears of happiness. Tears serve a purpose. They get us to a point. They get us to a place in our life. There, was no, there will be no near need for tears in heaven, no more sorrow. But yet there'll be tears in outer darkness. There'll be tears in hell but that will never be quenched. They will never and find their purpose. This is a very startling message that Jesus gets. You know, sadly, again, most of the times in my life when I've heard this passage taught, it always stops at verse 10. Nobody goes on and talks about the outer darkness. They just leave it and say, okay, now let's all go out and be a centurion. Listen, there's a great lesson in the centurion, but if you miss the point of why Jesus, folks, this is a big part of why Jesus actually put the centurion out there. He said, I want you to see this is what a person with real faith looks like. And he's not a Jew and he's not relying on his family connection. We know that heaven will be filled with people who were the likely ones, but more likely the unlikely ones. Ones that we thought they'll never be there. For us, some of us know we have some beloved loved ones there already. 
But just like Israel gathered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from east into the west, great multitudes will come and they will share the same heaven. Imagine we'll share the same heaven with Abraham. There's not a Jewish heaven and an Old Testament heaven and a New Testament heaven. We will all be there. But how sad is this to think? Again, notice, and Jesus says to the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the servant was healed in the self same hour. How sad it is to think that all these descendants of these great spiritual fathers will be cast out, thrown behind, left in anguish. Yet here's this centurion that comes not from the Jews, but simply comes as a Gentile, comes as a Roman officer. Doesn't come out of the synagogues of the Jews, which were the, supposed to be the pinnacle of religious knowledge. Who the synagogues sadly became places of heresy because the synagogues were not teaching faith in Christ. They were not teaching repent and believe. Remember the story of Rahab. Rahab bows at the feet, acknowledges her, who she is. Remember the self-righteous Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee rejects the great salvation and the publican just simply says, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Which one of those do you think progressed on to heaven? The Pharisee or the publican? It was that publican that wouldn't even dare turn his eyes to heaven. Oh, my prayer would be that this, this incident, this event would persuade us to believe God greatly. To believe in Christ alone. Never doubt the power of God. Never be at a place where we say, God, you can't, or if you can. But to have faith like this centurion had and to say, this is marvelous faith. This last step in verse 13, the, God tells the centurion to go thy way. It's an amazing thing. This man came in great crisis. He came in humility. He came in self-abasement. He stated his servant's case. And the Lord almost in a calm way says, okay, Mr. Centurion, go back to your responsibilities. You know, that might be, folks, the greatest proof that we have of faith that is a marvelous faith. That we trust God so much that we could simply just go back to our day-to-day routine, our day-to-day life, because we believe in the promises and the power of God. You know, one thing sometimes people go through, and this isn't meant to, to be a personal towards anybody, it's just an observation I've made. It's an observation I've made over years of ministry, and it's something that has, people go through a trial, they go through a struggle, And they make a statement like this, I just don't think I can handle church today. Now, I've often wondered, why would the the very place where you can be reminded and encouraged about the thing of Jesus and all that He's done for you, why would that be the place you want to avoid? 
Not that because the church building saves you, not because even the church people save you, but to remember that, listen, even when I'm going through struggles and trials, I believe that God is God and I believe in his power and I believe in his authority and I've given this over to him and I'm going to just continue in my regular everyday life because I know God is able. And if this is his will, then he's going to accomplish exactly what needs to be done. I've told you folks this, when I, went through, when I went through depression myself and the dark days of depression, I didn't want to preach, I didn't want to go to church, I didn't want anything to do, and that's what I needed. But I didn't want to. There were times I had to be coerced just to go over and stand in the pulpit and open the Bible. It's like, I don't want to be here. My faith had taken a real jolt. But you understand that the reality is here is that this centurion believed it to be so. The Lord said, go your way, and he went his way. Listen, take, take, what you're, take what you're dealing with to the Lord and believe that he has the power to do abundantly above all that we could ever think and ask. And then go about your life. Go home and enjoy what God has given to you. Notice the Lord demonstrates here a very important principle. The Lord, and we see this in Scripture, the Lord often gives to us in proportion to our faith. Don't miss what he says. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Jesus actually acknowledges, as you have believed, that's how it will be done. Now this isn't prosperity junk. This is not wishing for a million dollars. This is faith that he says, now believe it and go on. Our Lord spoke the word and gave the word exactly what the centurion desired. The result, the healing was immediate. It was complete. Not only was his life spared, but that means that that servant also was, his health was restored. Folks, you realize one of the one of the tests of how we believe God and how strong or weak our faith is, is in our prayer life. You realize a lot of times we're praying and we're praying with unbelief in our heart. We're praying, we're muttering a few words, we're saying a few spiritual things, we're saying a few godly things, but we don't really believe that God can do what we're asking Him to do. If that's never happened to you, praise the Lord, it's happened to me. I'm praying out of habit. I'm praying out of sometimes responsibility instead of saying, listen, this is a sweet communion that I can come to the Lord and I should not be muttering thoughts of unbelief, but I should be praying with Lord. I know that you're able. I know you have the power to speak a word. Instead of giving God the laundry list of everything you need him to do to make it happen the way you want, the centurion just says, all I need you to do is speak. That's all I need. Maybe we should be praying for the Lord to just give us a faith to go about our day-to-day lives. We pray prayers of faith. I love what it says, in the self-same hour in which you believed it has been done. That's what Jesus is saying. The servant got a cure of his disease. He didn't even ask for it. The centurion interceded on behalf of the servant. The master 
The centurion got approval of his faith. What was said to him is said to all of us. Believe. You know, we hear that word, we see that word, but do we really believe? The power of Christ is seen in the power of our faith. My faith is going to demonstrate, do I really believe the power of Christ or not? Listen, one of the great proofs of our faith is the healing of our souls that needed to be redeemed. We needed cleansing. We needed to be redeemed, have our sins atoned for. Folks, if we truly believe, if you can sit here tonight and know with 100% certainty because of the merits and the Word of God, if you can say that I know that I am a child of God, folks, you realize everything else after that in the economy of God is minor. It truly is. There are people walking all over this planet who don't have an iota of an idea about Jesus Christ's power and the power to save through his blood. And for you to have that kind of knowledge and for you to have that kind of understanding by the grace of God is certainly something worth praising God for. I hope we'll learn a little bit from this centurion and a little bit of his faith. And I hope it'll lead us, leave us to say, not strive to have Jesus pat us on the back about our marvelous faith, but that we would take the words of the Lord seriously as to what kind of faith we truly have in our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by this passage. And Lord, even as I stand here tonight and I read it again, there's just so much truth leaping off the page. There are so many things that we need to be challenged with and by tonight. And Lord, we certainly see the centurion in this story and we, we understand this was a real man. This was a, a person who was dealing with a real crisis in his life. But yet he knew the power and the authority of our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to have that kind of faith and to have that kind of assurance. But Lord, we also know tonight that if we are outside of Christ, if we've not repented and believed, if we've not been converted, we pray and we beg. And even as the centurion beseeched the Lord, we pray that souls would be saved and eyes would be opened and ears unstopped and people made willing to believe. But may we live the faith in which we claim. May we heed the words and be encouraged tonight. But Lord, we also know that we need to be dealt with. And we thank you for the power of the word. We thank you for the power of the spirit. Lord, help us now as we leave here in just a few moments. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's conclude with a familiar hymn on 296.